Good morning, Dunbar Heights. It's wonderful to be with you today. I bring you greetings from Regent College, your neighbor here close by. But it's a delight to be able to open God's Word with you, and I want to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 12 through 17. And I'm reading from the NIV translation. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some things, excuse me, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. We live in very, very strange times. I don't have to tell you that. I'm here with one person in the auditorium at the moment. Uh, these are days in which we uh, find ourselves removed from human touch. We're cautious about contact with others anytime we're out in public. Uh, my birthday actually is tomorrow, and my wife and I will not be able to go out to dinner and go to a movie. So these are really, really odd times. It made me think about a statement that Frodo makes in Lord of the Rings. When uh, Sauron is taking over the world and darkness is covering the face of the earth, Frodo says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. So we live in these odd times, but what I want us to talk about for a few minutes this morning is how do we live well as followers of Christ in the moment that has been given to us? And to do that, we have a very rich passage here in the second chapter of the book of Revelation. So in our passage this morning, I want us to look at three points. And the first is that God knows our situation. God knows our situation. Look again at verses 12 and 13. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. 
You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Not too long ago, I was on a fishing trip with friends, and uh, one of the guys was from Texas back in the States. And he and I uh, started talking about restaurants that we missed from back, uh, back at home. And uh, the, the restaurant Cracker Barrel came up, which we both had experienced in the past. And they have these great big biscuits and these different kinds of dishes that both of us really enjoyed. And there was a certain comfort to uh, having someone else know a part of my life experience. There was something comforting about that. And so what we find in this passage is the first thing is a word of encouragement that God really knows where we live. God knows what you and I are going through as we face this COVID moment in Vancouver in 2020. Notice, first of all, that God knows our context better than we do. He knows our context better than we do. The passage says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, obviously, this imagery of the throne of Satan is an image of darkness. Uh, it's an image of tremendous power. And we have to understand a little bit about the cultural context that John is reflecting on here. Pergamum was a large city for that time. We estimate that there were about 120 to 200,000 people who lived in the city of Pergamum. If you went down to the center part of the city, you would find at its heart a huge stadium that could seat thousands of people. And then in a semicircle around that stadium, there were large temples to different types of deities. On one end, you had a temple uh, really about the time, just after the time that John was writing here, a temple was built to Trajan. If you went to the ruins today, you would find this, this kind of uh, tremendous structure that was there as a part of the emperor cult, which was very much a mixing of politics and religion. If you went a little bit further, right in front of the theater was a temple to Athena, a large temple to the goddess of war, who was also kind of the goddess of the wisdom of the age and of technology. So you had politics, you had kind of a, a worship, if you will, of technology and kind of the collective wisdom of the culture. And then if you kept going over to the other side was the temple of Zeus. And if uh, you went to the ruins of Pergamum today, you would see a large raised platform with a place where Zeus would sit and actually, along the bottom, there were uh, kind of carved into the relief serpents uh, at the bottom of <clears throat> the altar of Zeus. So you had various kinds of religions that were represented there. And scholars have debated about which uh, John might be referring to here when he's talking about the throne of Satan. I think probably the best guess is that he actually has in mind the cult of the emperor. Because what would happen in cities like Pergamum, uh, really throughout the Greco-Roman world at that time, is that the religion of Rome and the prevailing government would be woven into the daily life of people. 
So if you were a business person, you probably uh, had aspects to the business group you were a part of where you would come and you would do homage to the Roman emperor. And so the dominating power, the forces that were there in Pergamum, um, made it feel tremendously oppressive to those who were saying, no, we don't serve ultimately Caesar, we serve the God who made this world, the God who created Caesar. We are beholden to no one except Jesus as Lord. And so uh, the first thing that we find as a word of encouragement to these folks is that God understands that you live in a cultural context where there is tremendous pressure from the outside that pushes against your walk with God and against your faith in Christ as you try to live that out. In fact, the second thing that we see here is that God not only kind of understands the particulars of our situation and the pressures that we might face, but God is aware of our faithfulness. God pays attention to the fact that that those of you in this congregation who continue to walk faithfully with Christ in the midst of a difficult situation in the world, uh, the pressures you're facing because of the COVID moment, God knows your faithfulness. He knows that you are continuing to follow Jesus into the difficult moment, not running away from the difficult moment. And so he says here uh, to them, you have held to my name. You have held to my name. Uh, Jesus says that you you have hung on to this public confession of me. Because going back to the emperor cult, Uh, People at times would be forced to offer sacrifices to the emperor in public and deny the name of Christ in order to embrace the prevailing powers of the culture. But uh, Jesus says here, you have held to my name. That word uh, held to is actually a term that could be very literal in, in the culture at the time. It could be used, for instance, of someone holding on to a rope um, something very little, literal like that. But it also could be used metaphorically to speak of staying committed to something or someone. If I could use kind of a, an analogy of what it would mean to hold to someone's name, imagine that my wife Pat and I were downtown here in Vancouver, and without knowing it, I had parked in, a, in an illegal spot. Now, you can imagine... You know, everything is about parking when you're out in in Vancouver. And uh, just imagine that she got back to the car before I did, and there was a policeman who asked, "Um, do you know anything about this car? We're going to have to tow it away. This car belongs to a guy named George Guthrie. Do you know him? And what if Pat at that point said, you know, I've never heard of him in my life. Well, uh, of course, she would not do that, but that would not be holding to my name if she did that. She would not be publicly identifying with me at that point. So when Jesus says here, you have held to my name, he means you have continued to take a stand publicly before others that you bear the name of Christ. Uh, You've made a public commitment to me and you're sticking to it. And then he goes on to say, and you have not denied faith in me. A lot of times in our modern culture, faith is used with the sense of kind of turning your back on all the facts and just leaping in the dark. But that's not what biblical faith is. 
Biblical faith would better be translated with the idea of trust. Uh, it's, it's actually stepping out into the light rather than taking a leap into the dark. You trust someone because you've come to depend on and you know their character. You know um, some things about that person. And in this case, these folks knew the faithfulness of God and therefore they trusted God's character and God says, this is a good thing. You've not denied, you've not turned away from trusting me in the moment. In these kind of situations that we're facing right now, we can be tempted to uh, kind of uh, get anxious and turn to all other kinds of things to trust in these difficult moments. I don't know about you, but we watch the news uh, we're kind of listening for when the vaccine is going to come online. Um, we're trying to follow Dr. Bonnie Henry like everybody else, and we're so thankful for Bonnie, right? Um, but the reality is our ultimate trust has to be in the Lord. Uh, our sense of control in this world is an illusion at the best of times. And so what Jesus affirms here is that these folks had trusted, they've continued to trust in God, and he says, even, even in the days when tragedy struck. And so he mentions that a guy named Antipas had actually died for the faith in their midst. When this guy was among them, he had stuck to his witness, to his identification with Christ, to his confession of Christ in public. And so even in this really, really difficult situation, um, they had continued to follow Jesus, and that is affirmed by Jesus himself. In some ways, the COVID situation is an opportunity for us as the church. It is a real test of our faith. Uh, we really find our faith tested and strengthened in extreme situations. Uh, this past week, I was just kind of following some friends on social media, and there was a young man who went to a school where a number of my students uh, had gone. Young church planting pastor, young children, beautiful young wife, very early in their ministry, and they were on the way to visit friends in another state and they had stopped to just help someone who was distressed on the side of the road to try to help them with their car. And in that moment, this young man was hit by a semi-truck and killed. Devastating kind of situation. You probably have had those kind of moments in your life where someone you knew experienced devastation. A number of years ago, we had a friend who was a colleague of mine, a professor at the university where I used to teach. Again, very bright, young, deeply committed Christian guy. And he died of cancer in spite of all the prayers that we poured out. And in reflecting on that, <clears throat> I actually wrote a poem that was a reflection on Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. You know, that passage is the one where um, <clears throat> the text says, let not a wise man 
boast of his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. And it's not just talking about a general form of understanding. It's specifically expressing a form of understanding of God's faithfulness in his character. So this is, this is a poem that I wrote just reflecting on these kinds of situations where we face very hard things and we're really not sure what to do with them. Although I know you, I dare not boast that I understand you. Oh, one I love the most. Cloaked astride, tornadic blast, deafening quiet, you pass me by. As when with tears, heart torn, we asked, and you let those good men die. In any case, I bend my heart. Only you know all your art. And give me light enough to say, your grace has shaped, has art my days. In what you delight, this is all my boast, your faithful love, O oh one I love the most. Sometimes we just hang in there as followers of Christ in difficult situations. And it may be the most significant expression of our faith in those times when we find that it's hard to hang on. So brothers and sisters, I want to say to us this morning, hang in there. Don't give up. Don't despair. Don't allow yourself to give in to cynicism or skepticism. God knows the situation we're in. God sees our faithfulness. And he affirms us in our faith. All right, the second point that I want us to take a look at in the passage is not only does God know our situation better than we do, but he also wants us to think rightly in our situation. God wants us to think rightly in our situation. In this passage, the text goes on to say, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. This is verse 14. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Uh, I don't know if any of you have had the opportunity to go out and look at the Neowise Comet, but the other night Pat and I stayed up uh, past our bedtime and we went out to uh, a hill just above Spanish Banks and with a whole lot of other people who were out there, we took our binoculars and we actually got to see the comet and you could see the, the tail of the comet, which was kind of a scattered white light there in the distance. But you had to finely tune the binoculars in order to be able to see the comet clearly. It's the same with our time. We live in a very strange day in terms of the collision of worldviews, the rapid advancement of worldviews that are contrary to the gospel. 
Uh, it's amazing to think about how much things have changed in public opinion even in the past decade. The people who were there in Pergamum were in a cultural context in which the minority opinion of the believers, their way of looking at the world would have seemed, seemed profoundly strange to people in the culture of their time. I know with some of our friends who are not yet believers, and in talking to them, I've actually had moments where I've stopped and just said to them bluntly, you know, this must sound crazy to you because the way of looking at the world as a believer in Christ is just profoundly different. Those at Pergamum uh, were holding to the name of Christ, but there were some in the congregation who had been toying with other types of teaching that were not healthy. The text says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, this is actually reference to um, a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. Balaam in the New Testament is kind of a prototypical false prophet. Because what he did, if you go back and you look at the text in the Old Testament context, um, he actually had Balak try to put a stumbling block before the people of God by drawing them away to a form of idolatry and sexual immorality. Second Peter picks up on this as well and says, uh, by forsaking the right path, these false teachers that Peter's concerned about had gone astray because they followed the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, what may be going on here is related to what I talked about earlier with the emperor cult. There were pagan associations in the city of Pergamum and many of the cities of that part of the world. Uh, there were kind of civic clubs that you belonged to, and you might belong to a civic club that was related to your guild uh, of business or some aspect of the government you were involved in. Uh, but in Pergamum and also in Thyatira, there were Christians evidently who were continuing involvement in some of these pagan associations. And often in those pagan associations, it was just normal to be involved in eating food that was sacrificed to idols or to kind of get caught up in conversations about sexual topics, that kind of thing. You can imagine just as we have uh, kind of social clubs here in Vancouver that you can be involved with, uh, you might, when you get together with that club, have a potluck when it's a non-COVID kind of world, right? So you get together and you eat together, and that's part of the whole drill of being involved with that organization. Well, that's the way it was in Pergamum. But evidently, for some of these believers, they were getting drawn away from the faith and getting sucked into values which were not appropriate or healthy for those who were Christians. We find, uh, as you remember, in the uh, Jerusalem Council, one of the main teachings that the elders of the church gave at that time was, uh, you need to stay away from eating idolatrous kind of food, and you need to stay away from sexual immorality. It's because those were things that were just so much in the fabric of the culture of their time. Of course, the reality is those things are very much in the fabric of our culture as well. 
We don't normally worship idols that are obvious where we see those things set up there in the culture, although there can be some of that depending on where you are in the world. But our temptation to bow down to powers other than the Lordship of Christ is a very real temptation for all of us. We can give in, we can get drawn away by different kinds of power systems in the world in order to fit in at work or with other people in terms of their cultural values. Um, and do we even need to talk about the challenge of being drawn away into various forms of sexual immorality? Uh, let me just remind us that especially when we think in terms of, of sexuality, God is the one who created sex. Sex is a great gift of God. It's a wonderful thing that is celebrated in right Christian thinking as a relationship between a husband and wife and something that's, that's a supreme gift. But if that's not submitted to Christ, then it becomes tremendously problematic for our spiritual lives because uh, Paul says that when we sin sexually, we sin against our own bodies. It's something that's a part of us. Uh, it is something that profoundly affects the other person that we're sinning with, whether it's an adulterous kind of relationship or pornography or something like that, we begin treating people as objects. And then also, obviously, it's addictive. So uh, we need to, to stop every now and, and then and think, am I getting drawn away into some attitudes or patterns of life that are not healthy? Uh, where I am, I am yielding to powers in the world, I'm yielding to patterns in the world that are simply destructive for my spiritual life. And what the text is challenging us on here is that God knows about our faithfulness, but God also wants to come around and challenge us to think well, to continue growing in the faith, growing in our understanding of the way that we look at life so that we're shaped by a biblical view of the world and are able to live well as God's people in the world. Uh, we're not really sure what the teaching of the Nicolaitans is referring to here. A little bit earlier in chapter 2, verse 6, you do have uh, in the letter to the Ephesians, Jesus saying, you have this in your favor. In other words, the Ephesians were getting this right. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So whatever those other teachings were, they, they may be directly associated with the teachings of Balaam that he's talking about here. Uh, but whatever they were, God hated them. <laughs> and so we can be sure that we are walking the way we need to in, the, in our thinking as we love the things that God loves, right? And hate the things that God hates. And so we want to uh, be people who are, who are being faithful in the way that we live. So I just want to give us uh, an encouragement to keep growing theologically, keep growing biblically, um, as, we, as we grow in the Word, as we grow and we understand uh, right teaching about God, that's all theology is. It's just how we think about God and God's world and human beings. As we continue to grow in those things, that gives us a basis of life uh, for thriving. Back in the 1950s, Dorothy Sayers was uh, a mystery writer in the UK. She was a friend of C.S. Lewis. And during her day, there were people in the church who were saying, well, let's just do away with all this tedious theology and dogma 
Um, and let's just kind of embrace worship, just worship no matter what. And she uh, actually said that in her day, uh, doctrine or dogma, theology had fallen on hard times as if that made for dullness. And this is what she said in, the res in response. She said, the Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. And the dogma, the theology, is the drama. Christ in his divine innocence said to the woman of Samaria, ye worship, ye know not what, being apparently under the impression that it might be desirable on the whole to know what one was worshiping. He thus showed himself sadly out of touch with the 20th century mind, for the cry today is, away with the tedious complexities of dogma, that is theology, let us have the simple spirit of worship, just worship no matter what. And then she concludes with this. She says, the only drawback to this demand for a generalized and undirected worship is the practical difficulty of arousing any sort of enthusiasm for the worship of nothing in particular. I love that quote. This is one of my favorite quotes. Uh, we grow in worship as we grow in our understanding of God. As we see the magnificence of God, as we see the beauty of the way that God calls us to live in this world, then we can grow in our worship of God as we love Him and thank Him. So one of the greatest challenges that you and I face at this point in, in history is that we live in a, a culture and a time of tremendous information, we live in a time of expansive collective wisdom. Uh, you can search any topic on the internet and find more articles than you could read in a lifetime. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, it takes discernment to sort out the things that are good and helpful and the things that are actually destructive and begin leading us down false paths. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff out there on the internet of all kinds, because all truth is God's truth. And, and when people have sound reflections on things in the world, it's something that we can celebrate, even if those people are not believers. But we have to evaluate such things over against the standard of God's word and God's truth and be discerning about the things that we're taking, taking into our lives. If you and I find ourselves having gotten off track and, and begun to embrace thinking that is not best, it's not Christian thinking, then what we need to do is we need to repent. And that's what the text uh, says. Jesus says to this church at Pergamum, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, what Jesus eventually will do with the church when we get off into false teaching is he'll sort us out. He will come and he will, he will deal with that false teaching. So it may be that you and I have times in our lives, I know I certainly do, when I find myself drifting into wrong thinking about something and I have to repent in the sense of kind of bringing those thoughts back into submission to Christ and God's word. So uh, think about where you are this morning in that regard. So first of all, God knows our situation. Secondly, God wants us to think rightly in the context of our situation. And then finally, God rewards our faithfulness. 
God rewards our faithfulness. Look at uh, verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus says here something that Jesus said often in his ministry. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, if you have discernment spiritually, then listen up. That's what he means when he says he who has ears to hear. Tune your ears. Get your ears tuned to hear this word of exhortation. How do we recalibrate our ears? How do we turn the dial, if you will, to, to bring the message of Christ into focus in a way that we can really hear it? Well, we do that by going back to the Word and being people who are living deeply in God's Word. So we need to set our hearts to fight for our own spiritual condition when we are struggling spiritually. Notice that he says to the one who is victorious. There's, there's a sense in which we are in a battle. We're in a fight for spiritual health when we find ourselves in these difficult moments in life, in the culture. So if you, if you find yourself embattled, if you find it difficult, just know that that's normal. Uh, that's the way the world is at times as we are trying to live for Christ. But in that context, also be encouraged that God rewards our faithfulness as we hang in there, even as was emphasized earlier in the passage. Now, there are two things that Jesus says that he will give those who overcome and who are victorious The first is hidden manna. Now, this is an allusion back to the Old Testament story. And it is speaking about the manna that came down from heaven that was given uh, as sustenance. You think about uh, John chapter 6, where Jesus uh, was actually alluding to those passages of the giving of the manna in the Pentateuch to draw an analogy between the manna and himself, that he would be the food that sustains in life, just as the manna sustained the people of God in the wilderness. But what is he talking about the hidden manna here? In Judaism at the time, uh, there was an idea that even though the ark had disappeared, uh, by the time you got to the first century, the ark was long gone. And Jeremiah actually said that the ark was not coming back. But there was an idea in Judaism that in the Messianic age, when Messiah came, that in some mysterious way, that Messiah would reveal the hidden ark and the manna would be recovered. A little bit later in John's gospel, John learns in chapter 11, verse 19, that the the ark, the heavenly ark, was actually going to be revealed. And I think um, in that sense, the way that we ought to read this idea of the hidden manna that Jesus would give those who are faithful, it is that he would give us sustenance in life. He would enable us to live, to persevere, and feed us, if you will, I think, with himself, with our relationship with him, that that would give us sustenance in these very dark times in which we live. 
The idolatrous food that Balaam had on offer could not compare to the life, the sustenance that Jesus gives by our relationship with him. Well, what about the white stone? Well, that's also an interesting image, and we are not quite sure what that's talking about. There are different options there, but I think one of the best suggestions is from Craig Keener. Craig says that in ancient courtrooms, often when a, a judge or jury, if you will, was kind of voting for someone being innocent, vindicated, or someone being guilty, they would take a white stone and put it down if the person was to be vindicated, or a black stone and put it down if the person was to be found guilty. And it may be that in this image of the white stone, what Jesus is talking about here is vindication for the people of God. I don't know about you, but it does get tiring at times for all of us when we are living kind of contrary to the prevailing mood of the culture. And uh, it is a, a wonderful thought to think that there will come a day when God himself will acknowledge uh, really before all the peoples of the earth that his people were right, that we were, were faithful in following Jesus and we will be vindicated in that, um, in that stance that we have taken. It's interesting that when you look at the New Testament, over and over and over again, the apostles themselves point to the resurrection of Jesus as the vindication of Jesus as Messiah and King of the universe. There's going to come a day when that's going to be known to everybody. All of the powers of all of the ages are going to bow before King Jesus, going to bend the knee and confess Jesus Christ as Lord, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And so this image of the white stone may be an image that we will come to a place as we continue to be faithful to Christ in which we will be vindicated for our trust in him. So we have here in this, this beautiful passage in Revelation 2, the assurance that God knows what we have been going through. Uh, he wants us to think well and thrive in life in our thinking so that we can thrive in our living. And then God rewards that faithfulness as we live in it uh, for him, even in difficult times like we are facing right now with this COVID moment. I read a little while ago about a young woman named Amanda LeMond. And Amanda had a difficult life. She was a young woman whose mother died of cancer when she was still very young. Amanda tells about being shipped around to different foster families for years until she was grown. And uh, she said, you know, it was just difficult not having much that I could hang on to from my mom. But then she got a package that had been found in the materials that were left over from her mother's estate. And what was inside the package were letters, photos, mementos from her childhood, even her original birth certificate. Uh, she said, these are glimpses into my past that I've sorely longed for for over two decades now. 
And Lemon said, uh, they showed up in the mail and kind of made my day. She never knew that the letters existed. But what was written in those letters gave her a new perspective and direction in life as she listened to the words from her mom. So what we have here in the letters of Revelation is we have letters that are treasures they are words that can give us profound perspective and encouragement as we face the moment in which we find ourselves. They can ground us and give us a renewed hope for the days ahead. Do you feel lost in this crazy world, this crazy time? So do I. But be encouraged today that God knows where we are. God sees our faithfulness. And God himself is uh, going to reward us as we continue to live for him. Let's pray together as we close. Father, thank you very much for your mercy. Thank you for this good word. I pray for these dear people here at Dunbar Heights that, Lord, you would strengthen them. Even as they're forced to be apart as a congregation, would you please build your body, build your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.